Our reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 8. As we continue together, we're going to spend a few weeks together in Romans 8. There's a lot in there. It's a reasonably long chapter. And so we begin together this morning in uh, 8, reading from verse 1 to 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, having read your word, and Lord, eager to spend time together considering it. Lord, as we hear these familiar words to us, we ask that you would bless us with wisdom and with clarity of thought, with understanding. For Lord, we want to know how to be your faithful people. Lord, not just in this building for an hour on a Sunday, but every day, all week, all month, all year for the rest of our lives. For Lord, we realize that we have received much from you. And Lord, it brings a complete change to us. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless us with wisdom this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have seen in the news uh, over this past week that circumstances have changed for everybody with the relaxing of uh, the various lockdown tiers, groups, areas, whatever it might be. Uh, But for one particular individual, somewhere in the UK, life has been very radically transformed. Somebody in the UK, we don't know who, what their name is or where they're from, uh, won on the the Euro Millions, I think it was, lottery this past week, something like £111 million, which seems like an awful lot of money for any one individual to just suddenly come into. And it is a lot of money for one person to come into, and for that reason... Uh, Camelot, or whoever the the current uh, lottery authority is, has two different approaches to doling out the money that people win if they win really big amounts uh, in the lottery. The first is to give you um, your winnings, but you don't tend to get all of it. 
You, you tend to get the, the vast majority of it, but they don't tend to give you the, the total amount. Or you can have the total amount, but they split it up over the course of many years. And so you get a bit of it uh, each year and probably each month that goes by. And so you can receive just an amount uh, to, to be working with as time goes on. Now, with £111 million, that amount is going to be significant. But the reason they do this is because early on in the, the lottery, in the UK particularly, they realized that when you just give somebody a million pounds, somebody who has earned maybe minimum wage all their life, and you just give them a million pounds, something happens in their mind, and they just lose control. And they found that the vast majority of people who won big amounts, seven-figure sums or more in the lottery, tended to have blown the lot inside 10 years. They just frittered it all away, just on silly things, just pointlessly wasting it, but they just couldn't handle that much money. And if you were to look it up online, you'd find a great number of people who've done that very thing. There was a young girl just the other year, just last year or the year before, on over a million pounds. It's all gone, and she's now in significant debt because of the lifestyle that she's become acquired, uh, as, as sort of become used to that she's acquired. A radical change in your life is very difficult to accommodate. It's difficult to see things in a completely new way overnight. And the lottery people realize that. They're not the only ones who realize that, though. Paul realizes that. A radical change happens to you when you become a Christian. Your life is completely changed from one moment to the next. And living your life from that moment onwards in light of the new reality that you now live in is incredibly difficult. It's hard for people to, to, to live in a measured way, growing constantly, just adapting to the new way of seeing things, the new way of living. And one of two things tends to happen. On the one hand, people just slip right back into the old way of life that they had before. They retreat to something that was comfortable, something I know, and I don't need to worry about all of this new stuff. I can just keep going the way I was before because I know what I'm doing with that. Or people go the other way. And I'm sure we've known people in both camps where you have some folks who become Christians and then really struggle and slide back into the old way of living, and the others who just embrace this new way of life wholeheartedly, and everything is an ultimate issue for them. Which version of the Bible you read, which hymns you sing, the clothes you wear for church on Sunday, how often you go to church-based ministries, just everything becomes an absolutely central, defining issue to the Christian faith. And if you don't agree with them, then there's something really suspect about you. And we, we recognize that as a, a sign of, of immature Christians. And we, we go gently with people and uh, encourage them and bless them and build them up. And over time, people tend to relax at least a little uh, and, and calm down and settle into a more uh, measured pattern of living. And Paul is addressing a group of people who have been transferred, to use uh, Paul's own words, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in an instant. So how do you help people negotiate that change? He's been dealing with that already in Romans, hasn't he? He's been addressing these complaints that he thinks people might have about the law, about the, the Jewish faith, and about how that moves into this new, this new reality where the Messiah has come. And, and we've been 
sort of redefined in a sense. He's seeking to anticipate some of the objections of Gentile believers who are going to struggle to know, are we supposed to become Jewish first and then become Christians? Do we take on the law and then try and figure out what Jesus has to do with that? He's been addressing all of these things. And now as he comes to Romans 8, which isn't really a separate chapter in Paul's writing, we've divvied up that way, but it's just a continuation of Paul's reasoning, he begins to address the Christian life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have been changed. God has given you forgiveness for your sins. He has given you his Spirit. And so how do you use that filling of God's Spirit help you navigate this new life that you have without sliding back into the old way or tipping into this kind of slightly wild-eyed, you know, everything's an ultimate issue type life. Paul ultimately wants us to recognize that although our circumstances are radically changed, there are a few key elements to our faith that we should be reminded about every single day. And it's one thing that I smile at when we read these words because this is really everything Paul writes in every one of his letters in the New Testament. He just repeats these things in different ways using different applications again and again and again because people are the same the world over and throughout time. We just struggle so much to understand these very simple things. And the first is in being given the Spirit of God, as he puts it in verse 2, the Spirit of life that sets us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, we are reminded that Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has paid for your sins. Now we say, of course, that's how I became a Christian. I realized I needed my sins dealt with, and I had that moment where I was kind of awakened to that reality, and I realized I couldn't do it myself, and so I knew that Jesus has done it all for me because that's the gospel that was preached to me, and I've cast myself upon Jesus. I know that. That's so simple. And yet, Paul has to remind us about this constantly because we forget. As unbelievable as that is, we forget all the time, and we slip into the way of thinking that we had before that we can just do it ourselves. That now I'm right with God, now everything should be right, and I can just just constantly do what is right. I need never do what is wrong. I had that um, in a conversation once with uh, with a a person who'd been a a Christian for a very, very long time, way longer, I mean, twice as long as I'd been alive at the time. And they they didn't like the fact that we, we talk about sin so much because God's forgiven us our sins now and we can just live without sin. You think, well... Yes and no. (laughs) We do live without the penalty of sin. We've been redeemed and we no longer need to answer for that sin. Christ has answered on our behalf and yet we still struggle. And when we decide that sin just doesn't exist anymore, we're going to keep falling into it. And we're not going to see that we've fallen into it. Paul says God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. We couldn't in the old way of life ever satisfy God. He says in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so to live as if we can please God simply by our own strength, by our own ingenuity and cleverness and wisdom and so on, is going to have us constantly running into problems all over the place. Paul says the law of God leads us only to death, and we've talked about that a lot, haven't we, over the last number of weeks, especially in Romans 6 and 7. The law constantly leads us to the point where we can see our sin, we can see the need for salvation, but the law can't do anything to help us. 
It just tells us here's the problem. There is a solution, but we, we need to do something about that. We, we can't simply just read the law and, and have it all figured out for us, have it all solved for us. In chapter 7, Paul's told us that he didn't know he was coveting until he read the law. And then the crushing realization of just how sinful he was uh, landed upon his shoulders. And he knew how sinful sin is, how wicked it is, and how much it needs to be removed from his life and how inadequate he is uh, to do that. We need the law, but we can't simply live under it. It's no good by itself to deal with sin. I was... Uh, chatting with a, a guy um, who is uh, now a, a chaplain down in England. We were at a conference together um, in the sort of early stages of ministry. You go on these conferences quite regularly just to connect in with other people at the same stage as you and to encourage one another and to, uh, to learn a bit from each other. And he was saying he'd, um, he'd taken a funeral in his church and he was chatting with the, the family members uh, at the tea after the funeral. Uh, and he was chatting to this man, and this man had eat, taken a huge bite out of a cake and had this massive blob of cream on the side of his face. And my friend was saying, I had that struggle of thinking, I don't really know this person. Should I say you have cream all over your face? And as time wore on, he realized it was too late now. He'd left it too long, and it would just be humiliating for everyone. So best just to leave the guy and let it be somebody else's problem. And then the, the, the man's wife turned to him. She'd been speaking to somebody else. Uh, and tapped him on the shoulder and just wanted to chat briefly. And my friend thought, great, she'll tell him. If anyone's going to tell him, his wife will tell him, your face is a mess, you're covered in cream. And she didn't. And he thought, why isn't she saying something to him? Surely she must see. He said, and as she turned back, he realized that she had a massive lump of cream on the side of her face, and clearly nobody wanted to tell anybody else what was going on. And he thought, I'm just leaving. I'm just going to find another table now, and I'll speak to somebody else. They needed to see the problem. Being content simply to walk around like that is, is not acceptable. Right now, in the case of a blob of cream, it's not the end of the world. You just look a bit foolish. But in the case of sin, it really is a matter of life and death. Paul says that in these, these opening verses. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He dealt with it because it can't be left unchecked. It leads to our death. He says in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. God sends his Son. Having made us aware of sin, Jesus comes looking like you and I. Now just to pause for a moment, this doesn't mean that Jesus was really God and he just sort of made himself look like a human being but he wasn't really a human he, you know just to help us understand what he was doing he sort of you know made himself look like something we all recognize but really it was just God that's not what Paul was saying there are problems if we take that view for example how does Jesus death on the cross actually work if Jesus isn't human if he's just sort of pretending to be human did he really suffer did he really die and if he didn't suffer and die on the cross, then we're not forgiven. So we need to be careful. Paul is saying here that Jesus comes looking like you and I, actually being a human and yet without sin. That's why it's in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came 
for the purpose of dealing with sin. And Jesus was so successful in his death and in his resurrection that he condemned sin. He basically writes sin off so that while its power is broken, it lingers on in this life, but one day will be fully done away with completely forever. And the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. He applies his perfect fulfilling of the law to our lives so that we are liberated from sin. He shows us sin and he deals with it. Christ takes the punishment for what we've done and we are rewarded for what he has done. And instead of us being condemned, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But sin is condemned and dealt with. And we need to be reminded about this often because we forget. We struggle with our sin. We feel that sometimes we're crushed under its weight, that we are maybe not really Christians at all because of the struggles that we face and the failures that we have. We condemn sin in other Christian brothers and sisters without looking at our own lives and we we write off other people because of this problem or that problem or whatever it might be. And we need to be reminded that if we are in Christ, Jesus has paid it all. You are not condemned and nobody can condemn you. This is kind of law court language where Paul is saying that Satan cannot stand up in God's court and say that person is not acceptable to you because of this and this and this. You cannot be condemned. You're free. And some of us need to be reminded of that so that we are freed from the crushing weight of our own guilt and shame for sins that we've committed in the past and we've asked for forgiveness for countless times. They're forgiven. We're free from them. And we need to be reminded of that for those moments when we condemn other people for the things that quite often we've already been doing in our own lives, but sometimes maybe not. But we condemn other people for the sins that they commit and we need to remember Christ has paid it all for their sins too. They are no more or less acceptable than you are. No Christian is. There is no tier system for Christians like the one in lockdown we're going through where the people in tier one are really better off than the people in tier two and three and and four. That's not how our faith works. We don't have tier one Christians who are much better off than the tier four plebs who just haven't really got it at all and are just staggering around sort of making a fool of themselves. That's not how this works. For the Christian, the law is a mirror to us to show us what has gone wrong, but Christ comes and pays for all of the requirements of the law so we can be free. And we can live free. And we can experience the joy of that freedom. The freedom from guilt and from shame. Yes, we remember the sins of the past and we use that to learn for the future. But we're not crushed under their weight any longer. They don't hold us back. They don't stop us from learning and going forward and growing. Because I just just can't go there again. It's done and it's paid. Jesus has paid it all. The second thing the Spirit does in verses 5 through 8 is we find he reminds us that Jesus has changed us all. 
We have a, a great desire in our society, I'm not entirely sure why it is, for um, programs that revolve around change, whether it be um, the sort of grand designs or the sort of changing rooms or 60-minute makeover, whether it's a house, a person, a car. It doesn't matter what it is. We have an obsession with these programs where we see something truly awful at the beginning, something that just looks dreadful and is over the course of the program changed into something really amazing. We're fascinated with the process of transformation. And you can see that in our society in a negative sense with much of what's going on around self-identity and, and so on, that we're obsessed with transformation, of being one thing but desiring to be another and then going on a process, a journey where uh, the end is achieved and we leave behind something old. The reason we like this kind of thing is we like to think that nobody is beyond transformation. That's the dream, that's the aspiration. Is we watch the program where the house has changed and think, I could do that. I could have rearranged this. Or, and they tend to make us want to make changes in our own lives. We see the inspirational story of the person who lo- lost 15 stone on this exercise plan and this diet. And we think, I could do that. And we use these things as fuel. We want to believe that we are not beyond the point of being turned around and going the other way. We're acutely dissatisfied with our lives in in many different respects. And sometimes it can be physical, sometimes it can be emotional or spiritual. There can be all sorts of dimensions to this. And we look at these people and we, we want to be like that. We want transformation to come and to believe that it's still possible. And the struggle we have is when we recognize that, well, it's fine for them. But I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and it just doesn't seem to work for me. And hope turns into despair after years of trying, and we feel we've not got anywhere. Well, Paul tells us in these verses, in 5 through to 8, that Jesus brings change to us all. He actually has accomplished it. It is a past action which has achieved this. It can't be undone or taken away. And as the Spirit is in us and reveals to us this change applies to us the fact that Jesus has paid for all our sins, so we begin to grow and be transformed. This is the function of God's Spirit that we touched on a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? The Spirit of God dwells within us, and because we have a new and living Spirit that dwells within us, He begins to reshape the world in which He lives, the, the place in which He resides. It's what we do when you buy a new house. You come into a house that somebody else has decorated, has arranged, has planned, has uh, has made fit for them, and you begin to recast it in your own image. So you change the carpets, and you change the color of the walls, and you take old wallpaper off, and you put up new wallpaper, and you put in new furnishings. You can tell this has been on my mind a lot recently, because we've just had some work done, and it's been painful to get all this work done, but the hope is the house will be more like our kind of house. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and he applies the truth of the gospel to your life and taking up residence in a new house, he begins to remodel the whole thing to something that is fit for the Spirit of God. That should astonish you. That should really amaze you that God himself is willing not just to look at your life and say, I can make some changes and and bring changes around in an external manner, 
But he is actually willing in his spirit, the person of his spirit, to take up residence in your life forever. To remodel your whole being so that it fits, it accords with him and his purposes and his plans for you. That you will glorify him in worship and in discipleship and in witness. Is that not a really astonishing thing? For those who live according to the flesh, Paul says, set their minds on the thing of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the thing of the Spirit. The Spirit is reforming your mind, reshaping you inside so that you go in a different direction. You see the world in a whole new light. For the mind, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. We we can't think the old way and the Spirit won't have us think the old way. It will begin to transform us. And Paul's going to go on a little later in Romans and say that we are to not think the way the world does, but to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So this helpfully reminds us of the fact that we are not able to have our cake and eat it. We are not able to have new life in Jesus, but go on thinking and speaking and acting the way that we did before. It's not possible for those thoughts and patterns of speech and behavior are hostile to God. They do not submit to God's law. They cannot. But we, by God's Spirit, have the power to be changed and to live and to speak and to think in a whole new way. Now, people were kind before they became a Christian, and they will be kind after Christ saves them. But the ground of that kindness has been completely transformed, has been refocused. It doesn't come simply from you and your nature and the desire that you have to be nice because that's who you are. It comes out of a desire to please God, to glorify Him, and to make much of Him in all that you do, so that when people are not kind to you, you're able to go on being kind to them. It's not about you. It's about God. And this is what the Spirit does, so that in every circumstance, we are able to please God. Not that we always will do things pleasing to God, but that we are able to. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but the implication is those who are in the Spirit can. And as the Spirit remodels our lives, refounds our lives, digs the whole foundation out and relays it, so we are able to have a whole new building designed and fit for purpose to serve God that is in our lives. And the change will result in a few different ways. It will result in different desires that we desire to spend time with God and His Word and in prayer and in worship. And so on. we desire to hear from Him and respond to Him. As we thought in previous weeks, we will desire to come to Him when we fail and when we sin rather than flee from Him because we acknowledge He is the only place where forgiveness and transformation can come. Hiding ourselves in a corner when we've fallen away, we've done something silly, we've made a a silly mistake and we've fallen back into sin isn't going to solve the problem. My grandparents' uh, puppy walked a a guide dog um, many years, it was before I I was born, and when this puppy came to them, it was a very, very young pup uh, that was given to them, they found that when they came into the house, if at any point you walked in through the front door and you couldn't see 
uh, Nessie, this dog, sitting in the hallway waiting for you to come, something really dreadful had happened somewhere, and you would find the dog under the dining table with its ears over its eyes, just lying very quiet and very still, and it had chewed through the phone line, or it had chewed up a a check, or it had dragged all the contents out the fire across the Um, across the the living room floor or wherever it might be that's our tendency that's the way of the flesh to want to run and hide and cover things over but what is pleasing to God is that sin is dragged out into the light and is dealt with so we move on and we grow our desire for that changes as God's spirit works within us to change our lives into a, a life that is pleasing and fit for the worship of God. We also see our lives in a slightly different way as we struggle with temptation. I don't know if you remember, there was a thing in the news a number of years ago where there was a huge spate of uh, refugees living in France near uh, the, um, the border crossing, the, the tunnel uh, into the UK. And what they were doing was they were getting, in some cases, whole tree trunks and rolling them down an embankment in front of cars driving uh, towards Calais and in order to stop the traffic. And it might cause a crash and people might be injured, but that was really by the by. It would stop the traffic. And while the traffic was all stopped and backed up, these refugees would then run onto trucks that were all queued up in the thing and then hide themselves inside, underneath, on top of trucks that were then either going onto the, the ferry or were going uh, towards the, the tunnel to come into the UK. And in that sort of picture, we have Satan who constantly comes and throws roadblocks in our way to stop us, to derail the, 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 um, the direction of our lives, as it were, and have us just sit and go nowhere and do nothing while he loads all sorts of stuff into the back of our mind to have us constantly crippled under the weight and the shame of sin, of guilt that has already been paid for. You are not condemned, Paul says before God if you are in Christ. But that doesn't mean you're not going to walk around feeling condemned, and that's exactly what Satan does. And the Spirit of God enlivens us to this, enlightens us, makes us aware that this is a constant problem. So we are able to constantly labor against it, pray for ourselves, pray for one another. Jesus has changed us all. We are not the people we once were. The old has gone and the new has now come. And we need to be reminded of that if we're going to walk in this new life. Lastly, in 9 to 11, Jesus raises us all. In 9 to 11, we read that we are no longer slaves to the flesh. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... You are still in this body that will let you down, frustrate you, fail you, that will one day die. But that is of second importance. What is primary is that you have the spirit of life because of righteousness given to you. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Death no longer holds you. It's no longer the the shackles that that keep you constrained, that keep you fearful, that keep you anxious, that keep you um, living that old way of life, seeking to please yourself. We eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We, We don't need to worry about that anymore. 
For we know that life is more than just the food and the, uh, the drink that we consume. It's worth more than just the, the house or the car or the job or even the family that we have here and now. It is bigger than that. It goes on into eternity. It is about the glory of God. Not about my being satisfied, being fulfilled, whatever it might be. And this serves to remind us of one thing above all. We are truly dead without Christ. We're not a bit sick. We're not even gravely ill. We are dead. We are going nowhere. And it doesn't matter how much we try and be good and be kind and whatever else it is. It doesn't make any difference. When I went to Ukraine a couple of times uh, on a, a summer mission trip, um, and it will be the same across most of, uh, of Eastern Europe where the Eastern Orthodox Church exists, um, and I suspect probably the Coptic Church as well in the, in the south, um, there is a, a tradition among many of these churches where they get old saints that have died sometimes 200, 300, 400 years ago. And they're in these sort of display cases in a crypt underneath a big cathedral somewhere. And they'll drag them out every year and dress them up. And you can go and see them. And I mean, it's just, a, it's just a skeleton in a costume, really. I mean, it sounds bizarre and slightly foolish. This tradition goes on all over uh, the world. It's a part of the, the Roman Catholic tradition in Latin American countries and, uh, and uh, many other places. Um, where they, they get people who are saints and they sort of dress them up. As if somehow you can come and spend time in the presence of this person who you're reminded is a saint because they're wearing fancy clothes because there's no other way of telling who they are because they're just bones. And somehow that will be of benefit to you. But this is a nonsense. They're gone. They're not there. So what does being in their presence do? It does nothing. It's an ultimately fruitless exercise. It's like the, the odd occasion if you've ever been to a, a humanist funeral or um, one taken by a, um, a sort of a, an atheist celebrant, you'll find them seeking to fill the time in the funeral because they've got nothing to say. And one of the things they'll tend to do is they'll say lots of thank yous to the person who's died. Who do they think they're speaking to? They're not there. And they know they're not there because they're an atheist. They don't believe there's anything after death. And yet we feel sort of we should say something because we need to fill the time that we've got. This is a nonsense, and Paul outlines this here. In sin, in the flesh, we're not sick. We're not, you know, could do better. We're gone. What we need is the spirit of life, the spirit of Christ to dwell within us, who doesn't just raise us to new life for 20, 40, 60, 80 years, but who gives us eternal life, who raises us up from the dead such that we never die. And when we know, because Christ's spirit reminds us that we will never die in this sense, we're freed from worrying about it all the time. Free from worrying about what this life is all about. Where is this life going? What is my purpose? What is my value? What is my meaning? And so on. All of that begins to fade away. We know exactly who we are. We know exactly what our purpose is. We know exactly where we're going. And so we are no longer needing to fear death in the work of Christian ministry. This is something that many of our missionaries we've sent overseas have grounded their mission upon. I'm willing to go to the far-flung corners of the world and die for the sake of Christ because my life will not have been wasted. There was a wee biography of, of Jim Elliot and many others just recently who um, went off and at the very beginning of their lives, in a sense, at the very beginning of their ministry, were cut down and killed by the people they had gone to share the gospel with. 
And it wasn't a waste. And his family doesn't believe it's a waste. And the people he went to don't think it's a waste because they ended up all becoming Christians as a result of the ongoing mission work. We're reminded by the Spirit of God that Jesus will raise us all and so we are made far more able to cope with all of the stresses in this life that we face every single day by dint of simply being human. We're probably not all going to win £111 million on the Euro Millions lottery. I suspect most of us aren't going to fall into that category. But we will go through a moment, and have done, I suspect, where our lives were radically transformed, made completely new. And it's difficult for us to live that new life. It's hard, and we should acknowledge that. Christians are awful at trying to make it look as if everything's nailed down and fine, and I know where I'm going and I know what I'm doing. We often don't. It's hard. And we need God's Spirit to remind us constantly we are no longer condemned because of what Jesus has done. He has paid it all. He has changed us all. And he will raise us all on the last day. And God's Spirit will remind us of that this coming week so that whatever we face, we might face it faithfully for the sake of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, we thank you that we are no longer condemned in Jesus' name. Lord God, we ask that you would reinforce that truth, that reality to our lives this coming week. Lord, we sometimes forget, we become complacent, we're busy, there's a lot going on in life, and and then we wonder sometimes why we're struggling spiritually. Lord, remind us daily that in Jesus all our sins are paid for, there is not one that will be held against us. Lord, that Jesus is about that work of changing every one of us by his spirit that dwells within each one of us. Lord God, help us to go into each day confident. For this life is now held together by your spirit. It will never be let go. It will ultimately never end. We will be with Christ for all eternity. So Lord God, we ask for great confidence, for courage as we face uncertain days. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would fill us and remind us of these things this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.